Tonight I want to talk about liberation, enlightenment, freedom, happiness. And the motivation is that uh, I've been, because I've been leading a lot of retreats, I've, I've, already, I've already done this month, I've done three, the month of March, three retreats and one day-long retreat and then the Tuesday nights and I, I reflect every retreat on the, the things that I'm offering and I realize that every single teaching not my every single teaching, but the teachings of awakening as expounded on by the Buddha. Every teaching, even the most seemingly mundane and practical and, and worldly, is all about liberation. And I've often thought of this one teaching uh, about the the three pillars of the Dharma. We hear this, I don't know if you've heard this teaching about the three pillars of the Dharma. The three pillars of the Dharma are Dana, Sila, Bhavana. Dana, which is we all know as generosity, gener generous giving, Sila is conduct, ethics, morality. And bhavana is mind training or meditation. It's the, the training of our, our minds to, to dwell in the present and to wake up to the deeper truths about life. So we think of dana as often as related to you may think of dana as related to mission dharma. You may think of it as somehow separate from liberation that this system that started 2600 years ago, the system of mutual generosity where teachings were offered freely, support to the community was offered freely, and as a in order for the nuns and the monks to offer their support freely, the system was set up so that the lay community, people who received support and teachings, as their practice of giving would provide for the needs, the requisites of the monastics. And it was this river of giving and receiving that uh, has kept the teachings flowing along for 2,600 years. And we often talk about how the teachings were offered freely because they were considered priceless. They're offered freely so that they would be accessible to anyone regardless of their resources and situation in their life. And the third reason was because of the emphasis that the Buddha gave on the liberating effect of being generous. All of the teachings are about this liberation of the, of the contracted self-absorption, self-interest, 
I don't mean individual interest and the needs of, a, of our individuality, but an excessive self-referencing, an excessive sense of separateness that makes us in a chronic way believe that we are somehow apart from the flow of life, disconnected from nature, from reality. So all of the teachings have the impact of melting away, the intention of melting away this delusion of separateness so that each person can through every practice that they engage in, can, can feel, not just feel, but recognize and feel the contingent nature of reality, the, the interdependent nature of reality, and melt away that feeling of isolation, that feeling that, as I often use the metaphor from the Bhagavad Gita, feeling that I am the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. And one of the more accessible, practical means of melting away that feeling of separateness is by, in every possible way in one's life, to follow that impulse to be generous. To feel that extending of the heart, the melting away of the separateness, through the non-clinging, the letting go that comes from giving. giving kindness, giving a look, giving your resources, giving your time, giving your, your life to the welfare and benefit of others. It's that spirit of generosity that, that reveals to us our, our deep sense of inner being and liberates us from that feeling of separateness and isolation. Any of you ever have that feeling of separateness and isolation? Now this is not suggesting that we give up our individuality. It requires our individuality in order to do these kinds of practices and it, it requires a certain kind of persistence to keep giving rise to the, and following the impulse to give. You know, I, I, some of us in the planning group associated with Mission Dharma, where there's a lot of generosity that goes on, and it's, and it's volunteer. But we happen to have a, a meeting tonight with, the, with two of the, the main people who, as their volunteer, as their practice of dana for this church, they think about how to, make, how to keep the church really healthy and alive and, and thriving and offering programs and being able to host groups like us. The, the church has become a mission. It's no longer considered a church exactly, it's more of a mission. And, they, and we fit right into their mission of, of creating some kind of social well-being for the neighborhood and they, do, they, they allow people to rest here early in the morning till noon. They do all kinds of wonderful things. And so there's a lot of generosity. And I really felt, I, I felt a transmission of generosity from the two people who we met with. There was a kind of gravitas almost of somebody, the, the woman that we met with, she is the oldest member of the kind of continuous member of the congregation here. She's not that old, but she's been coming here since the 70s. And she loves this place. She's connected with this place. She's, and out of that connection, that widening of her sense of herself, she's 
slowly, slowly moved into the service role of, as part of the church, her practice of generosity. And I could feel the church in her. It was, it was though she wasn't a, just a person anymore. She was carrying the, the transmission, the kind of the, the force of the goodwill of the church. And you could really feel it in her presence. And that kind of liberation, I, can, I felt this as a kind of liberation, a melting of just the preoccupation with our self-interest. It doesn't mean that we have to have appropriate self-interest. We can't self-abandon, otherwise we end up stuck in ourselves. But once we have our basic needs met, it is, um, it is such a source of joy, a source of freedom, to let our hearts melt into that, that interbeing through the practice of dana in whatever form it takes. And so it's, even though we put out that begging bowl each week, it's, it's actually a very profound teaching on liberation to practice dana. And this is just one small form that you can practice in your life. But it's a, it is a way of, of melting into into developing a relationship with uh, this community, with the world around you. That's how we feel that sense of connection. And each person will express that in their own, in their own practice of generosity, in their own way. So dana, very central part of the, part of the teachings. And then the sila, that is... Um, you know, you think of sila, you think of morality, and then you think of the Ten Commandments, and all of a sudden you get a little tight. Heart gets a little tight. But again, the Ten Commandments, it's a liberation teaching. But in the teachings of the Buddha, the, the sila is not meant to be adopting a list of commandments and rules that then you start struggling with in your mind and fight against as some kind of internal, you know, with some kind of authority. But it's more a, a practice of waking up to, our, to what in our actions helps us to join with the world, to create harmony in the world, to create happiness, to create blamelessness in the world. And what in our actions uh, leads us to that self-preoccupation? What leads us into contraction? What leads us into unhappiness? I happen to be stumbling on some sutras teachings tonight and went before the group and I, I found a sutra called the Sig Sigadala, Sigalada Sutra, or it's, it's called the Advice to Sagala. I guess that's how you pronounce his name. But in this sutra, the Buddha is talking to this fellow, this person he meets on the side of the road that's, that's um, father told him that he needed to, you know, pray to the earth and to do all kinds of, uh, all kinds of special prayers. And the, and the Buddha said, if you really want to devote yourself to the, to the earth and to the goodness of the world, etc., practice removing those causes of misery in the world. And it, so they, he talked, I, there's a long list, and I'm just going to share a few of them. He talked about the four, the four vices of conduct, 
that you must remove from your life. Destruction of life, killing, stealing, taking that which is not offered, adultery, and lying, not telling the truth. And he talked about what leads us to what leads us to act in ways where we take life, where we steal, where we lie, where we commit adultery or, or cause harm with our sexuality. Talked about partiality, which means grasping at, at the way, th the way th we think things should be. Could be opinions, views, etc. Anger. Anger becomes the cause of these kinds of things. So they, to consider very carefully what in your mental world, what in your emotional world needs to be, needs to be attended to so that your actions can spring from love and not from ill will. Stupidity. What do you need to, to do in order to, to act with clarity and wisdom? Because if when you act with confusion and ignorance, you, you end up expressing yourself in ways that cause a lot of harm. And other actions are driven by fear. Uh, the antidote for fear is, is loving kindness. How do we create the conditions for that? But still, the, the liberation of the heart is is, is, is developed through resolving both the inner conditions that lead to unwise action and the outer conditions that lead to a sense of safety, lead to a sense of, uni of unity and a sense of community, and not, uh, that don't lead to a sense of isolation. So everything is about melting away the sense of separateness. Just a little aside, the list of the six doors of dissipating wealth. Drinking. Staying out late at night. <laughs> this is, goes back to the time of the Buddha, it's wild. Haunting fairs, which means looking, looking everywhere for places to dance and sing and, and you know, party. Which means getting excessively involved in partying. Gambling, keeping unwise company, and being excessively idle, lazy. This is a reminder that leads into the next part of the, of the pillars of the Dharma, but in the basic training guidelines for lay people, we are encouraged in order to melt away that sense of separateness, to liberate the heart from the, from the painful effects from acting, thinking, and speaking unwisely, we commit to reverence for life, not killing. We commit to not stealing, not taking anything that's not offered. We commit to being impeccable about being, having our sexuality driven by, by caring and not by lust, not just by wanting to gratify our, just the pleasure of it, and just not to cause harm with our sexuality. And we 
We are encouraged to study our speech and then speak in a way that is truthful, useful, harmonious, for the benefit who, to whoever we may be speaking to. And did I say timely? Timely, truthful, harmonious, kind, harmonious and kind, same. For the benefit and just not causing suffering with our speech. Not speech imbued with ill will. This requires a kind of vigilance because I know for me in my life there's been often a little short circuit between an impulse and then what comes out of my mouth. And of course the more my mind has settled into my body, the more I'm sometimes more magically able to have a little space of, of clarity or a space of in, be able to catch that intention to let out of my mouth something that I know will actually harm me and another person. And I've confessed my delusions many times here on Tuesday that that, that little space between impulse and action has be, become much more blinding when I've had encountered some kind of law enforcement person. And I have more often than not really let it rip. And it has not been helpful. <laughs> and I think my wife would say I've messed up a few times too. <laughs> but not as much as with police. <laughs> Because, because it's, if, there's a, if there's a partiality of view and opinion that I've become quite identified with, it's justice. And if I feel that there's an injustice, I'll just come out. And sometimes just to come out with ill will is not, it's not always wise, it's not always timely, it's not always for the benefit of the person I'm speaking to. <laughs> anyway, so... Wise speech, wise sexuality, wise relationship to property and respect for other people's property, a true desire for others to feel safe. It's an act of generosity as well. To have a reverence for life, not to kill. To give that gift to others that they can feel safe and not, be, not have to feel threatened by you. Buddha called it the, the, um, the gift of fearlessness, where no one has to fear you, and can give rise to the, a joy of not, of, of not causing harm, otherwise known in the teachings as the bliss of blamelessness. Last but not least, already referred to as the, fi the fifth training guideline, agreement that we make with ourselves and sometimes as a group is the agreement to refrain from taking intoxicants to the point of heedlessness and carelessness, not causing harm, not doing any kind of drugs and alcohol to excess because it is one of the ways that our life, our joy, our wealth, can be dissipated.
as well as just so much suffering caused from, from the heedlessness, the carelessness that comes from taking intoxicants. And it is, a, it is such a go-to place for so many uh, as their source of relief, spirits. But um, often the, the downside, the shadow side, the, the karmic impact is not really carefully considered because our view when it comes to the desire to get high or get drunk or whatever, our, our view, anytime it's, in, anytime it's embedded or bound up in some desire, it tends to get very narrow. Except those desires to be liberated, except those desires to be benefit. Those kinds of desires are wholesome and they melt away the delusion of separateness. Most other things that we engage in and become addicted to increase the feeling of separateness, causing the very tension that, that we're actually trying to relieve. Because we're all trying to be happy. We're all trying to find relief. So the teachings basically encourage you to find that relief of self-preoccupation by, by acting thinking, speaking in ways that are harmless. Of course, that's not a commandment. That's something for you to study in your own life. And you may find that a little drug, a little alcohol, a little pot, a little this, a little that, you may find that it, in your own, as your own authority, you may find it, it actually enhances your spiritual practice, your wakefulness. So don't impose some kind of view that I shouldn't do this and then just make yourself miserable. Study it. These are all, these are, liberation teachings are meant to be living practices. As, as Stephen Batchelor said about the Buddha Dharma, Buddha Dharma is a living response to a living question. It's not just a, a book of commandments. Did you have your hand up? Yes, if you, why don't you come up here so people can hear? And use the microphone. One of our, one of our intentions is to uh, eventually have a, a walk around mic because I really miss Q&A. <laughs> so you, you mentioned justice and I have that same issue that you have. And I guess it's just really hard sometimes to know when are you speaking up for the good and when are you just causing harm. And I wonder if you can elaborate a little on that. When are you speaking up for the good and when are you causing harm? Well, I, I can only speak for myself. And I think that I'm always intending to speak up for the good and not cause harm. Because I think that's the deeper motivation. But when, I'm, when I speak and I have not metabolized the anger that I feel or the frustration or the ill will that I feel, then that's what comes out. And then I end up becoming part of a problem of people getting contracted and separate. If I can work with the mental state that I'm, have that sacred pause, have that kind of wakefulness about my speech, just a consideration, is this wise speech? Then I might, you know that the Native American tradition talks about saving your anger till the next day? 
So if I could just pause a little bit, so much I might be a much more effective activist and communicator of justice. But that's just, yeah, it's just what's the energy behind it? Yeah. So then there's, of course, a fine line between, between being fierce and being angry. And it's, well, I'm not talking about being, you know, being necessarily kind of soft. I can be very fierce, but I can hopefully do that. At least that's my aspiration, to be able to do that without being angry. And the wider my understanding, and that leads to the next part, the wider my understanding, the more that I'll see that that policeman, for example, is just the heir of all of their karma, their circumstances, their capacity, their whatever their power trip, their, um, their um, ego identity with, with their role, with their, their views, their opinions, and that we all in some way get bound up in our own, you know, in our own view about ourselves. And when we are bound up in our view about ourselves, we don't always act for the, with the best interest of everyone. <clears throat> and I see that. I, I go through, uh, this last weekend, I went through Regina, I was in Regina, Saskatchewan to leave, lead a retreat. And I love that community and been going there for many, many years. They're a very strong Dharma community. And just for your information, I had a fun experience. I went to the Chapters bookstore. Any of you Canadians? Chapters bookstore is kind of the, the Barnes and Noble. And they had my book there, five copies of my book. <laughs> this is in the prairies, <laughs> which I thought was kind of fun. But I, going through the airport, I go into fight or flight almost, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> I go into a, a state of shock because I've been treated really aggressively and really poorly in the airport. And when I did act out at one of the power tripping security people, it, my acting out almost kept me from being able to get on a plane. And so every time I go there, through there, I have to breathe and relax and I have to look for that person who I offended and there's just so much repercussion to the littlest, littlest vignette from our lives and we're just doing that stuff all the time. People are just leaking. And yet I might have been able to affect the same kind of outcome of getting on the flight that I needed to get onto without, without cutting loose. I may not have learned as much about my own tendency to act out. But. So that's the beauty of the Dharma too. These painful moments become the cause of our, of our opening, become the cause of our liberation. That's the one unique thing about human beings is our, our difficulties become the, the cause of our freedom. I don't think too many Creature, too many species have that benefit. Anyway, last but not least, so we have dana, the melting of our hearts and the sense of separateness through dana, liberation of the heart, the liberation of our heart through through sila, through non-harming, through spreading, you know, wise action, goodwill in the world, and last 
that which informs the first two is called bhavana, the, the mind training, that requires, uh, it requires some mental effort, some kind of grit, some kind of willingness to go against the stream of all the habits that can ruin our lives as, what is it that Hafez says, all these habits that can ruin your life, they keep sending their invitations. That well, this, the beautiful thing about bhavana or mind training is that we are trainable. That we are not just tucked being carried along by the stream of our habits. That every moment is a is a, a fertile ground of creative possibility to turn our attention toward both goodwill and our generosity and non-harming and toward uh, an awakening to that which is not um, awakening to a sense of freedom that is unstuck from everything that we're usually preoccupied with and caught up in, everything that we're reacting to, to a well-being that is, that is um, free. And it really is a result of where it is that we place our attention. I don't know if I've been talking about this lately, but I get a lot of questions about on retreats, especially when there are people, new yogis coming to retreats. And every community I go to, there are, there are always new people coming along, and it's, it's exciting to, for, to work with so many new people. And, and so I will, and people are very well read, and they'll come and they say, well, isn't this, isn't when I run and when I, when I do my, um, when I, when I do my creative work and when I'm hiking and when I'm rowing or whatever it is, isn't that concentration, isn't that the, you know, the, the flow? You get into the flow? Isn't that the same as meditation? I said, yes and no. Yes, in that meditation, when your mind is in the same location as your body and you keep it there, or oriented to real time, and when you are intentionally intending to pay attention to what you're doing and learn from it, yes, you do from time to time experience a flow. You feel as though you're connected with the flow of life. In that way, it's the same. Because there's often a feeling of gladness when people experience flow, a feeling of at home. There's also a temporary feeling of non-separateness that people often feel, that they're being moved by something bigger. So in that way, it's very similar. But it's different in that when, when that flow occurs in meditation practice, where the very purpose of it is awakening, the very purpose of it is to, is to see through the illusion of separateness. That kind of flow, it's called, it's called samadhi. It's called 
the unification of mind applied to the study and the experience of the mind's nature and the heart's nature and the body's nature. And when it is, when it is that kind of flow is liberating. It allows us to see more clearly and experience more clearly that joining that happens when we practice generosity. It allows us to experience more clearly and understand more clearly the effect of our words and our thoughts and our actions. And it, and it allows us to, in all those domains of our life, see so much more clearly that our wisdom is able to shine. Our wisdom is able to shine through and it becomes the cause of wise action. It becomes the cause of generosity. It becomes the cause of non-harming. Not because we've, the, the teachings sound good and they intuitively feel right. We just, we see in real time that it really matters what you do with your mind. It has a tremendous impact every single moment. And then you, if you keep, keep up with this intention to be awake and to be unified and to practice non-harming and to practice generosity, you keep it up you be, and you're persistent with it. And you have grit. This word grit has been in my mind lately. You just keep doing it. You keep applying. You keep showing up. You keep showing up on Tuesday. You keep, you keep extending yourself whenever, you, whenever that impulse arises. You keep practicing. You keep sitting. You go to retreats. It creates a field of tremendous mental strength. And that mental strength gives you a sense of fortification. And that creates the conditions to be able to relax, actually. It creates the conditions to be able to relax into the flow of life, knowing that you can bear joys, you can bear sorrows, you can sit in the middle of it and not, and not lose your seat. Not, not have to hide away in fear, dullness, idleness as that teaching, but to be able to stay in the middle of the marketplace with love. Can you indulge a five-minute reading? Someone asked me to bring this, and it took me about a month to find it. And if you're here, it's a story I told many years ago, and I, I, think, I don't think I've read it for about five or so years. And it's called The Daffodils. And it's the, to me, it's a, a very strong inspiration to practice. Again, this, this person's practice is not meditation, but I think you'll get the analogy. Several times my daughter had telephoned to say, Mother, you must come and see the daffodils before they are over. I wanted to go, but it was a two-hour drive from Laguna to Lake Arrowhood, Arrowhead. Going and coming took most of the day, and I honestly did not have a free day until the following week. I will come next Tuesday, I promised a little reluctantly on her third call. Next Tuesday dawned, cold and rainy, still I had promised, and so I drove the length of Route 91, continued to I-215, and finally turned onto Route 18 and began to drive up a mo 
to drive up the mountain highway. The tops of the mountains were sheathed in clouds, and I had gone only a few miles when the road was completely covered with a wet, gray blanket of fog. I slowed to a crawl, my heart pounding. The road becomes narrow and winding toward the top of the mountain. As I executed the hazardous turns at a snail's pace, I was praying to reach the turnoff at Blue Jay that would signify I had arrived. Then I finally walked into Carolyn's house and hugged and greeted my grandchildren. I said, forget the daffodils, Carolyn. The road is invisible in the clouds and fog, and there is nothing in the world except you and these darling children that I want to see bad enough to drive another inch. My daughter smiled calmly. We drive in it all the time, Mother. Well, you won't... And just think about that, that little passage about idleness. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like meditating today. Okay, sorry. I don't need to editorialize. <laughs> we drive in it all the time. Well, you, you won't get me back on the road until it clears, and then I'm heading for home. I assured her. I was hoping you'd take me over to the garage to pick up my car. The mechanic just called and they finished repairing the engine, she answered. How far will we have to drive? I asked cautiously. Just a few blocks, Carolyn said cheerfully. So we buckled up the children and went out to my car. I'll drive, Carolyn offered. I'm used to this. We got into the car and she began driving. In a few minutes, I was aware that we were back on the rim of the world road, heading over the top of the mountain. Where are we going, I exclaimed, distressed to be back on the mountain road in the fog. This isn't the way to the garage. We're going to my garage the long way, Carolyn smiled, by way of the daffodils. <laughs> Carolyn, I said sternly, trying to sound as if I was still the mother and in charge of the situation, please turn around. There's nothing in the world I want to see enough to drive on the road in this weather. It's all right, mother, she replied with a knowing grin. I know what I'm doing. I promise you will never forgive you will never forgive yourself if you miss this experience. And so my sweet darling daughter, who had never given me a minute of difficulty in her whole life, was suddenly in charge and she was kidnapping me. I couldn't believe it. Like it or not, I was on the way to see some ridiculous daffodils driving through the thick gray silence of the mist-wrapped mountaintop at what I thought was the risk of life and limb. I muttered all the way. After about 20 minutes, we turned into a small grove, gra gravel road. I don't have my reading glasses on tonight. Branched down into an oak-filled hollow on the side of the mountain. The fog had lifted a little and the sky was lowering, gray and heavy with clouds. We parked in a small parking lot adjoining a little stone church. From our vantage point at the top of the mountain, we could see we could see beyond us in the midst the crest of the San Bernardino Range like the dark humpbacks of a herd of elephants. Far below us the fog-shrouded valleys, hills and flatlands stretched away to the desert. On the far side of the church I saw a pine needle covered path with towering evergreens and manzanita bushes and an inconspicuous lettered sign, Daffodil Garden. We each took a child's hand and I followed Carolyn down the path as it turned through the trees. The mountain sloped away from the side of the path in irregular dips, folds, and valleys like a deeply creased skirt. Live oaks, mountain laurel shrubs, and bushes clustered in the folds, and in the gray, dr drizzling air, the green foliage looked dark and monochromatic. I shivered. 
Then we turned a corner of the path, and I looked up, and I gasped. Before me lay the most glorious sight, unexpectedly and completely splendid. It looked as though someone had taken a great vat of gold and poured it down over the mountain peak and slopes where it had run into every crevice and over every rise. Even in the mist-filled air, the mountainside was radiant, clothed in massive drifts of waterfalls of daffodils. The flowers were planted in majestic swirling patterns, great ribbons and swaths of deep orange, white, lemon yellow, salmon pink, saffron, and butter yellow. Each different colored variety, I learned later that there were more than 35 varieties of daffodils in this vast display, was planted as a group so that it swirled and flowed like its own riv river with its own unique hue. In the center of this incredible and dazzling display of gold, a great cascade of purple grape hyacinth flowed down like a waterfall of blossoms framed in its own rock-lined basin, weaving through the brilliant daffodils. A charming path wound through the garden. There were several resting stations paved with the stone and furnished with Victorian wooden benches and great tubs of coral and carmine tulips, carmine tulips. As though this were not magnificent enough, Mother Nature had, had to add her own grace note. Above the daffodils, a bevy of western bluebirds flitted and darted, flashing their brilliance. These charming little birds were the color of sapphires with breasts of magenta red. As they danced in the air, their colors were truly like jewels above the blowing, glowing daffodils. The effect was spectacular. It did not matter that the sun was not shining. The brilliance of the daffodils was like the glow of the brightest sunlit day. Words, wonderful as they were, simply cannot describe the incredible beauty of that flower-bedecked mountaintop. Five acres of flowers. This too I discovered later when some of my questions were answered. But who has done this? I asked Carolyn. I was overflowing with gratitude that she had brought me, even against my will. This was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Who, I asked again, almost speechless with wonder. And how and why and when? It's just one woman. Carolyn answered, she lives on the property. That's her home. Carolyn pointed to a well-kept A-frame house that looked small and modest in the midst of all that glory. We walked up to the house, my mind buzzing with questions. On the patio, we saw a poster. Answers to the questions I know you are asking was the headline. The first answer was a simple one, 50,000 bulbs. It read, the second answer was one at a time by one woman, two hands, two feet, and very little brain. <laughs> the third answer was, began in 1958. There it was, the daffodil principle. For me, that moment was a life-changing experience. I thought of this woman who I had never met, who more than 35 years before had begun one bulb at a time to bring her vision of beauty and joy to an obscure mountaintop. One bulb at a time. There was no other way to do it. One bulb at a time, no shortcuts, simply loving the slow process of planting. 
loving the work as it unfolded, loving an achievement that grew so slowly and that bloomed for only three weeks of each year. Still, just planting one bulb at a time year after year had changed the world. This unknown woman had forever changed the world in which she lived. She had created something of ineffable magnificence, beauty, and inspiration. The principle her daffodil garden taught is, the one, is one of the greatest principles of celebration, learning to move toward our goals and desires one step at a time, often just one baby step at a time, learning to love the doing, learning to use the accumulation of time. When we multiply, multiply tiny pieces of time with small increments of daily effort, we too will find we can accomplish magnificent things. We can change the world. There's more, but I think you get the point. So let's all dedicate ourselves to the cultivation of dana, sila, and bhavana, of generosity, non-harming, and the training of our attention to dwell with wisdom and love and energy and grit in the living present until our hearts release and the, the release of the hearts of all beings everywhere. May all beings be liberated. May all beings have happiness, the cause of happiness, free of suffering and the cause of suffering. May all beings wake up. May all beings grow in serenity and equanimity, able to meet the joys and the sorrows of our life with equanimity without reaction, grasping, or aversion. May our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. Thanks for staying a little late. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for ge your generosity. One short announcement. We, have, we are blessed next week with the presence of Anushka Fernandopoli, who's going to be leading the group. Spirit Rock teacher, activist, brilliant, fantastic use of metaphor. I, I always feel so happy when uh, she can take the seat here. So she will be here next week. I'll be the, here back the week after. So come and support Anushka. Bring grit to your practice, continuity of mindfulness day in and day out, and be kind. Thank you.